until you really immerse yourself in the gospel, in the word, in healthy Christian friendships and fellowship, the world is gonna teach you all kinds of messy definitions of love. And, and we know that in this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. So if we wanna learn what love is, we look at how he loved us by sending his son as the propitiation for our sins. So we need to soak in that reality and that love long enough that our love in dating and eventually in marriage begins to look like that love and not the opposite of that love. So I think that takes time. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Marshall Siegel. Marshall is a writer and serves as managing editor at DesiringGod.org. He's also the author of Not Yet Married, The Pursuit of Joy in Singleness and Dating from Crossway. Today, Marshall and I discuss singleness and dating as a Christian. He shares some of his own story, including his struggle with contentment as a single person, how to deal with feelings of guilt and shame related to your past, and advice for discerning whether or not you and your significant other are ready to take that next big step and tie the knot. Let's get started. Well, Marshall, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your own story. Um, How long have you been married now? I got married in 2015, so we just celebrated five years. Faye is my wife. Uh, In April, we had actually planned a trip to celebrate five years, but that got derailed like everyone else's plans in April, so celebrated at home, but uh, five years now. Wow. And how long did you and Faye date before you guys got married? We dated for almost two years, uh, long distance. So she she grew up in Los Angeles, California. I'm originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, but I was living in Minneapolis at the time that we were dating. And so we met in 2012, started dating in May of 2013, and then got married in April 2015. Okay. And then did you do a lot of dating before you met Faye? Was that was that kind of part of your own personal background? Yeah, it was a huge part of my background. So I started dating really early, actually, in, in middle school. It was probably what I would say would be my first serious girlfriend and and then several throughout high school mm. and into college. So it's a, a big part of my story, something I write about in the book, but uh, a lot of brokenness in the story. But it was either way, it was a really significant uh, time in my life where I, I learned a lot spiritually about myself and about the Lord. So yeah, I mean, part of the, part of the big reason for writing the book was just I felt the Lord had taught me so much through the peaks and valleys of the pursuit of marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as you think back on those years of dating, as you said, in junior high, high school, uh, and you think about your own kids. Is there an age that comes to mind in your mind right now that you would kind of want your kids to wait until they started to experiment with dating? Yeah, my kids are young. So I've only been married f- five years. I've, my oldest is four, just turned four. So it's I'm sure it's one thing to answer that question right now, and it'll be another thing to answer that question at right. 12, 13, 14, 15. But my, as my wife and I have talked about it, and I think I mentioned it in the book, um, We've talked about waiting to date until you can marry is the principle that that we want to encourage. We're not planning to put it as a law in our house, but that's the kind of thing we want to encourage our son and now daughter. Hmm. Uh, that's the kind of way we want them to think in terms of wisdom about dating, that if you start dating at a time when you're not really ready to marry financially, circumstantially, educationally, then you're really setting yourself up in the vast majority of cases to experience a lot of temptation and frustration and heartache, honestly, through it. So we hope to 
to train up our children to think in terms of, I want to start dating when I can actually marry. Mm. And that seems like that's a probably a pretty countercultural message uh, for even for most Christians today. Obviously, there's the probably a contingent of Christians who are uh, fully on the no dating kind of bandwagon. But then it seems like the the dominant thinking right now is is sort of like, yeah, you know, it's a fun thing to do. Uh, it's it, it doesn't necessarily need to be this big deal, or it's not that harmful. But you kind of you kind of th- seem to think that it's it's more serious than that. Yeah, I do think that that is the the dominant feeling is that it's it's not harmful, it's fun. It it actually prepares you for marriage uh to learn how to relate to the opposite sex. And that's just emphatically not my story and not the story really of anyone that I know. Um anyone who dated, anyone I know who dated seriously in high school, you know, apart from a few exceptions where people do end up marrying the person that they dated in high school, the vast majority of the cases there's just a lot of it's filled with regret. It's it's feel it's filled with things that uh, with mistakes and failures that didn't have to happen. Um, so I think it's it's absolutely healthy to develop uh, good friendships, robust friendships with the opposite sex to to build community that you're getting to know uh, young men and young women and and learning to admire the the qualities in the opposite sex that are worth admiring, especially their love for the Lord and their their uh, devotion to the lost and their willingness to serve and ministry in the local church. And so I, I want to cultivate an admiration and affection for the right kind of qualities over that time. But I don't think dating is critical, especially in the teenage years. I don't think it's it's critical to preparing for marriage or to, to practicing for dating. If anything, I think it trains, it trains you to come in and out of relationships. It, mm. it really is a training in the opposite of marriage in the vast majority of cases. So some people do it well and they do it well with with accountability uh, in their home and in the church and in friendship. So uh, again, we're not going to make it a law in our house not to do it or that anyone else should practice it as a law. But I do think the vast majority of dating in that time period is, ends up being more destructive than helpful or productive. Mm. Yeah, in your book, you had this line that really stood out to me. Uh, you said, we love to be loved, but we aren't completely sure or even know what love is. Would you say that was you in your teens and 20s? Oh man, absolutely. And uh, I, I had a craving for that kind of love. I knew that from early on, but I didn't really know what it was. And so the first times I ever said, I love you, I don't think I had any clue what I was saying. Um, I think I was trying to draw, it was more manipulation than anything. You're trying to draw a response that gratifies your flesh and your desire to be uh, admired and respected and desired. Uh, it was not coming from a healthy place of being s- solidified in the Lord, mm. uh, secure in Him, and and offering love, offering to lay my life down for somebody else. It was trying to have somebody come and serve my needs and my interests. So yeah, I just think until you really immerse yourself in the gospel, in the Word, in healthy Christian friendships and fellowship, you you ha- the world is going to teach you all kinds of messy definitions of love, and and we know that in this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. So if we want to learn what love is, we look at how he loved us by sending his son as the propitiation for our sins. So we need to soak in that reality and that love long enough that our love in dating and eventually in marriage begins to look like that love and not the opposite of that love. So I think that takes time. Yeah. Yeah. One, as you mentioned, obviously we're always, and young people in particular, are bombarded with messages from the world that purport to tell them what real love is and uh, how to find meaning and significance in another person. We're, we're kind of 
taught that message from a young age from the world. But I know a lot of uh, even Christians within the church, there's a critique of the church as well that would say that the church is often too focused on marriage and married people, and there's kind of this uh, perhaps idolization of the nuclear family and this kind of perfect little this unit of a, a man and his wife and his you know kids, and that that could maybe contribute sometimes to a desperate search for a relationship uh, among some people. Do you think that's a fair critique of the evangelical church broadly? Yeah, it's hard to critique the broader ev- evangelical church, so I'm I'm slow to do that, but I'm sure that it's true. I'm sure there are churches where marriage and family have become uh, have been re- elevated to a height above where God intends them to be. And, and I w- can imagine situations where singles feel left out, marginalized, uh, feel like junior varsity mm. Christians in their church. And I, I don't think that's right. And I don't think it's the Bible, how the Bible talks about singleness. That's how, I mean, when you ask, why did I structure the book the way that I did with the not yet married life and when the not yet married meet? So singleness in the first half of the book and dating in the second half, I knew when I did that, that a lot of people would buy the book and just skip the first half and start reading the right. second half. They, they wanted to read about dating. But I wanted to say really loudly and clearly that part of da- a healthy dating life is realizing the preciousness of singleness. Like the Bible exalts singleness. It doesn't diminish singleness. It says this is a time for undivided devotion to the Lord, and there's amazing potential in singleness. And so uh, for me, in terms of getting that balance right, I've, I've been thinking about Psalm 27.4, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, single or married, that will I seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. If marriage becomes your one thing in a church, in a person, in a soul, if marriage becomes your one thing, it will ruin you for the presence of the Lord. It will ruin you for the beauty of the Lord. It will ruin you for prayer because marriage has become God. And ironically, I found that if marriage becomes your one thing, you will end up ruining your marriage. Like a, a person who wants marriage more than anything is not prepared to be in a healthy marriage. That marriage is going to consume too much of their their heart and desires. That we need the Lord to be that one thing for us so that we can keep things in proportion and that marriage and family, good things to be desired. Uh, before I was married, I knew they were good things. The Lord says they're good things to desire. Now being married and have children, I can say emphatically they are good things to be desired, but we don't want them to rise above where God has them in Scripture and in our in our lives. We need Him to be that one thing. Hmm. Well, it makes me think of a story that you tell in the book about uh, how you, you wrote a number of articles about singleness for Desiring God uh, a couple of years before you actually got married. And then after you were married, you would occasionally still see critical comments of those articles all on the lines of, yeah, it's always the married people who tell you to be satisfied in Jesus and encourage you to not idolize marriage. And now obviously these people, they didn't realize that you had written those before you got married. Uh, but do you think there's any truth in that? Do you think married people can be too quick to kind of uh, jump in and say, hey, make sure you're not idolizing this. You know, don't, don't be so focused on uh, marriage, sing- you single person. Yeah, I think it's a great question, and it's an interesting phenomenon to live through as you're teaching on various topics on, through articles and and through speaking, to have people respond that way. Um, I think the dynamic works both ways, interestingly enough. So I do think there are married people that don't remember the unique trials of singleness and the unique sorrows of it, and maybe have started to diminish them in their own minds, thinking that the married struggles and trials are 
tougher um, than singleness trials. And so I don't think that's a healthy way to think about it. And, and if you're trying to give counsel into singleness and that's how you, you think about it, you're probably not going to be as helpful as you could be. Ironically, I think it works the other way too. So I think single people can largely think of marriage as this uh, greener pastures on the other side. And yet the, the consistent testimony, I mean, it just sobering wise that the divorce rates tell you that it is not the, the greener pastures that many imagine it would be. So I think single people can imagine that marriage, married people generally have it great and single people have it hard. And so, so I think there's a general principle here, Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish amb- ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, so the things that you're familiar with and uh, understand more, but also to the interests of others. I think it can work both directions. The main burden I have in that discussion is to say, yes, there'll be married people that probably come and try to set you up with people and diminish the the struggles of singleness and try to encourage you that this is actually a really great thing, that that singleness is a gift that you need to steward. Um, but don't let that keep you from really good counsel from married people. And I do think that we need, especially in singleness, we need counsel from those on the other side of marriage to help us understand this this stage of our life. They've been through this stage, all of them. Mm. And uh, whether it was a, a short time ago, a year or two ago, and they've been married for a couple of years, or it's 30 or 40 years, their perspective, this is true on all kinds of issues in the church, their perspective will be uh, extraordinarily helpful because it's different. Most of our peers will probably be in the same stage of life that we are, but to actually get some wisdom from someone that's further along or or in a different stage can be really helpful. Ultimately, I just want to preserve our ability mainly to be able to share scripture to one another, that God's voice through whoever is so important, so necessary, so valuable. And, and I have 2 Timothy 3 in mind, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So single or married or anywhere in between, I want to preserve the ability for a married person to come to you in your singleness or for a single person to come to you in your marriage and to be able to hold out what God says in his word and for us to believe that these words are going to help us be complete. And I think a lot of single people feel incomplete, insecure. Do you want to feel complete? Listen to the words of God. And if it's a married person bringing them to you, great. If it's a single person bringing it to you, great. I think we need both voices. So it was not at all to say that married people should be the only people to talk about singleness. I wrote it as a single man. I wrote some of those articles as a single man. So I think we need single voices as well. Uh, Other people that are along the same lines, experiencing the same temptations, frustrations, confusion. I think faithful voices uh, in the same season are really valuable. And then I think faithful voices in other stages of life are really valuable too. Mm. Yeah, you talk about coming to see uh, reading those uh, negative comments about your articles as a revelation about how we can all be so prone uh, to, quote, wield our pain to reject God's good news for us. That's a heavy statement because it's a real thing. We, we experience pain. A single person might be experiencing true pain because they really want to, to be with someone. They want to be married. And yet, you're saying that it's easy to, to wield that pain to then actually reject God. What do you mean by that? Explain that a little bit more. Yeah, so I think what I saw in the comments was people saying, well, you're married, you don't understand the pain that I'm experiencing, so I'm not going to listen to you. And I think if you make your shared experience of suffering uh, 
the bar for which you will listen to somebody, you're going to cut yourself off from all kinds of ways that God will speak to you. In fact, I would say most of the ways that God will speak to you because we all suffer in various ways with trials of various kinds. Often, I mean, even single people who are experiencing similar things will talk to each other and say, you don't really understand Mm. what I'm going through. So we can't make our suffering the bar of who we're going to listen to for counsel. And really probably what I'm, I'm trying to pull out a little bit more there is just the difference between suffering with hope in God, ultimately, and self-pity. And I think if, if we're prone to self-pity, then we're going to retreat into ourselves and say, no one understands me, uh, no one can really speak to what I'm experiencing. And, and I think Satan does that to isolate. I think self-pity is an isolating vice. And, and it, it is, and it's an indulgence, really. And I, I know it because I experienced it over years where I thought I was going to be married and I wasn't. So I, I really just want to call people to say, beware of self-pity in singleness, because self-pity will isolate you from people. And you'll feel lo- you already feel lonely. You already feel like, where is my husband? Where is my wife? Where is my family? And so that's the self-pity that we feel there strangely can isolate us from others that God has put in our life. And God has said that the the most important relationships in our life are not blood relationships. It's not marriage. It's not children. It's people who hear and do the will of God. And so um, I just don't want self-pity to rob us of the encouragement and the counsel and the exhortation and the rebuke that we desperately need to be faithful in our singleness. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think I remember reading that you didn't get married until you were close to 30. Is that right? Yeah, 29. Okay. And did you ever struggle? I think something that maybe many single people uh, can wonder, especially if they've been single, maybe a little bit older into their, uh, as a little bit older uh, adults, is wondering if the lack of marriage is a punishment from God. If they've done something in their past, if some past mistakes or sins, God's holding those over them, and that's why he's withholding marriage from them. Did you ever wrestle with that, that kind of thinking? Absolutely. Um, deeply, really. I mean, I, I would say some of the darker, I mean, others had suffered in their their teens and 20s far more than I did. But I would say for me personally, the darkest seasons of my life up until 30 were seasons of regret and shame and, and feeling punished by God because of mistakes, especially in my dating life. Um, and so absolutely I've I felt I've felt that and, and it's hard. It's it's hard. Satan uses those moments mm. to really drag you through the sin and shame that Christ died to rescue you from. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so uh, so we have to fight that feeling of shame and sin. If we are in Christ, if we are truly believing and we're repentant, we're not giving into those same sins, we're not running back to those wells of sexual immorality or dishonesty or whatever it was that we were indulging in, we can't allow ourselves to wallow in condemnation because it's not Christ. Christ spilled his blood. Rejoice not over me. One of my favorite texts in all the, the Bible, Micah 7, 8, and 9. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light to me. I shall bear the indignation of the Lord, he says, because I've sinned against him. So I think we're meant to feel a holy, hopeful, righteous guilt over sin. We, we, sh- we deserve the indignation of the Lord because we've sinned against him. But it says, until he pleads my cause and executes judgment, not against me, but for me. 
he will bring me out into the light. I shall look upon his vindication. So those are the kinds of truths we need to just soak in if we have this in our past and we're, we're fighting, we're, we've walked away from sin, we're trying to live in the light. Um, we don't need to live in the, the sin and shame, the mistakes and failures of our past, uh, but we need, to live, we need to live in light of what Christ has done. He came into the darkness, he was light to us, he uh, pled our cause to himself before his throne, and he brought us out into the light, and we'll, we'll look upon his, his vindication. But that being said, I do think that that guilt and, and the, the trials of singleness, especially after failures in dating, can be a form of discipline. And I think for myself, I'm not going to speak in every, into every relationship, but I think for myself, I do think God withheld marriage from me for years. I mean, I, I thought I would get married right out of college, and so it's almost a decade later that I finally get married. Um, I do think God withheld marriage from me to discipline me. And that's, that's hard for some people to hear, but I have a text like Hebrews 12 in mind. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines everyone he loves mm. and chastises every son whom he receives. So I look back on that season of life and I, uh, I look at the pain that I felt and I believe that that was the Lord's discipline, not punishment. And that's a huge difference. So if you just feel like you're being punished by God, that is not the gospel. That's not what Jesus died for. But that doesn't mean that it's not going to hurt. And he says, it goes on in Hebrews 12, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. So if, if this loneliness feels painful, if this um, not finding a spouse feels painful, if this uh, over and over again kind of coming up against a wall in conversations or dates or relationships, if this feels painful, it could be the Lord's discipline. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So I think if you lean into the Lord's discipline, not saying it doesn't hurt, it says really clearly right here that it does hurt, it is painful, but I think it can be the discipline. So I look back on that season and I think that that the Lord was disciplining me by withholding marriage, not punishing me, but disciplining me. Mm. And I think there's been a peaceful fruit of righteousness that's come on the other side of, of that discipline. So that's that would be my prayer for those who feel that way, that you would walk through Micah 7, 8, and 9, feel the vindication of the Lord in Christ, and then you would receive the Lord's discipline because he disciplines every son or daughter that he loves. Mm. Yeah, it's a sign of his love. So as a single person, I'm sure uh, when you were going to church on a Sunday morning, you would, you would sometimes get the, the classic, oh, I'm sure that someone, that God has someone for you. You just need to be patient. You know, there's someone out there for you. Do you say that kind of a thing to single people when you talk with them? I don't. Um, and I've heard, I heard it a lot in my 20s, especially. Um, and I, I generally don't think it's helpful because I don't think God, God may even know that God promises, does not promise. I know that God does not promise marriage to every person. And it, and the reality right now is in the church, at least in America, that people are getting married later and later. And there, and at least anecdotally in my own life, there's more and more people who want to be married and aren't into their 30s, some of them into their 40s. So I'm sobered to that fact. And I would never say, oh, I'm sure someone will come along. I, that's not where I want to anchor their hope ultimately. If someone's really struggling with, I want to be married and I haven't been able to find the one yet, I don't want to say, uh, take heart God will send you the one. I, d I don't think that's helpful. I don't want them to have. I don't want them to go home that night or wake up in the morning 
expect, expecting that mercy. I want them to be, again, one thing I've asked of the, of the Lord, that will I seek after. I want them to hope in God that ultimately, whether they are married or not in this life, and some of them won't be, uh, I have people in my life right now who are in that situation who I cannot say confidently that they will marry. They may live for another 30 or 40 years and be single, but I can tell them that one day we'll be gathered together at a wedding and we will say together with a full heart, no regret, no bitterness, we will say, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready, Revelation 19.7. So ultimately, I want to do the best I can to anchor their hearts in the hope of heaven, in the hope of Christ, that in his presence there is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't want to anchor their hope in a 30 or 40 year marriage in this life, which will be difficult and hard and beautiful and worth it. I don't want to anchor their hope there. I want to anchor their hope higher than that. Mm-hmm. Speak a little bit to the person who is in a relationship right now. They're, they are dating. And I think one of the, the biggest questions that people who are dating can wrestle with is that question of, how do you know? Uh, how do I know if this is the one that God has for me? Uh, any advice you would offer related to answering that kind of question? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's a, a common question. Um, again, our, our uh, community group right now, which is our church's small group, is uh, it's just my wife and I, and then all single folks who we love. So, but we're wrestling through these kinds of questions still five years later, uh, discipling young men and women through these kinds of questions, which are are massive. I mean, it's it's rarely perfectly clear. The Lord wouldn't have yeah. it that way. He wants us to depend on Him and to pray and to not expect that this is going to be easy or perfectly clear. Um, he wants us to lean into him through the whole process. So, And, and yet, sometimes it seems like, maybe because of the rom-coms that we've all seen, uh, it seems like it should be clear. It right. should be a very obvious, natural, smooth kind of discovery. And so when it's not, it's it's maybe bewildering for us. Exactly. And, and I do think, something I say in the book is, uh, I do think that we've we've grown to believe the compatibility is the the great um, clarifier for marriage? I don't even know what that means. What is com- what does it mean to be compatible? How do you assess that? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to assess. So, so it's a combination of your sense of humor and things you like to do together, and, and all these things that you do on dates. But you get into marriage, and you realize really quickly that compatibility that you first of all you don't feel as compatible as you did when you were just going to the movies <laughs> or. Uh, going out to restaurants because life is just hard and it's difficult and you're you're undeniably different and you're both sinful. And so I've said over and over again that marriage is far less about compatibility than it is about commitment, about covenant. Um, I talk about the vows, that the, the vows you make on your wedding day have almost nothing to do with what you've experienced in your dating life, how fun and affectionate and romantic that felt. Those vows have almost nothing to do with with what happened already in your dating relationship. They have everything to do with the future, which is just uncertain and uncontrollable. This person that you marry is going to go through all these changes over these next years or decades, and you can't control that. All you can do is be faithful to the promises that you've made. Um, so I, all to say, I think it's it's a massive and weighty question. Is this person that I'm dating the one that I should marry? And I, I usually point to three factors to, to consider as you do that. One is just a subjective sense. Do I really want to marry this person? 
And that should be an easy one in one sense, but it's often more complicated if you actually talk to people that are in real relationships. There's part of them that does, and there's part of them that doesn't. So I think it's good to pull that apart with somebody else and and really get into what, what are what are your motivations for being with this person or wanting to be married to this person? How much are they rooted in your joy in God and your desire to make your life count for his glory and desire to win the lost and serve the church? Or is this rooted in something else that's more earthly and, and not heavenly? So your own subjective sense is, is the first thing. Do I really want this? And and someone else can help you decide, I think, whether that's a true desire or if you're doing it for other reasons to please people in other ways. Second, confirmation from people who know you, love you, and are willing to tell you when you're wrong. And I think this gets left out. I think people in a lot of dating relationships get more and more isolated from their other relationships, right. so their family and friends. They end up spending all their time together, often isolated from everyone else. And I think that's so dangerous. I think this time, this dating time, especially as it gets more serious, is a time to lean in all the more mm. to the people who know you most, uh, love you most, and are willing to tell you when you're wrong. And I add that at the end just to help you discern love in those relationships. Uh, are they willing to tell you when you're wrong? Because a lot of people will just cheer you on. If you're happy and the other person seems happy, great, go get married. And that is, can be so harmful if there are really yellow or red flags in the relationship. And so mm -hmm. I would say lean intentionally. Faye and I tried to do this even over long distance. So whenever we traveled one way or the other to visit each other, we made we we structured our schedule of those trips so that we could spend as much time as possible with the people in our lives that we trusted on both sides so that we could say, hey, what do you see here? Is this does this look healthy? Does this look like marriage like something that should turn into marriage? Or is there are there concerns that you have or questions that you have about our relationship or how we relate to one another or about the person that we're really excited about? So mm. uh, lean into people who know you best, love you most, and are willing to tell you when you're wrong. And then the last one, you could do that. You could have a, a deep desire to marry this person and people in your life could say, yeah, I think this is a great idea. We support you. We want you to move forward. And then it doesn't happen. The other person doesn't feel the same way. They're, the people in their life don't feel like it's a good idea. Circumstantially, things could happen that make this difficult or impossible. And so I just say the last one is just, uh, does God lovingly open or close the door uh, for you to marry, for this relationship to continue and, and go into marriage? And I just put that there just to say that God can do this uh, a thousand different ways. So through somebody that comes to you and says, hey, I think you should go on a date with this person and you've never met them before, or it could be something on online dating, or it could be someone you've known for decades, or you could date for a couple of years and it seems like it's going really well, and then all of a sudden something happens that uh, that leads to you breaking up. I think it raises all kinds of questions of, well, I want this, and people in my life think this is a good idea, and yet it's not happening. So God, are you are you against me? Um, why, why would it go this way? And so I just want to create the category in people's minds that you may want it, and people may think it's good, and God still may have other plans for you. And uh, and so embrace that. Know that he knows you better than anyone. He promises to supply all of your needs according to his riches and mercy. He's a loving father. He's not going to give you a scorpion when you ask for bread. Uh, he knows you best. And even if in the moment it seems like you think you know better, he knows better than you. And he wants to love you. And so trust him that if this relationship doesn't work out, that he's got something else in mind. Doesn't mean another relationship. Doesn't mean a marriage. It just means that he know, he knows what's best for you, and he's going to provide for you in some other way. Mm, yeah. Well, you you kind of hit on some of this perhaps already, but I wonder if you could speak again to the Christian who is dating. Maybe they're they're in a new relationship. Maybe it's an old relationship. They've been together with this other person for a long time. But what would what would three very practical pieces of advice be 
that you wish uh, you could maybe give your past self if you had the chance when it comes to dating? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think the first one's one I've already touched on, and that's to be more intentional about drawing other people in. Uh, something that a lot of people don't think about. They just are so focused on what's the chemistry between us and do we enjoy being together. Almost all of their dates are just the two of them. And so I just want to say lean into those who know you most, uh, know you best, love you most, and are willing to tell you when you're wrong. So that'd be the first one. The second one is is related to boundaries. It's something for sure I talked about in relationships, but just didn't take seriously enough. And I think especially as the man, I could have humbled myself and been far more intentional to not want, especially touching, but even things in, in conversation, to be something that happens organically and spontaneously, but instead something that happens through conversation and trust building mm. and patience. And so I would just say, if a, as a relationship turns from just, hey, we've been on a couple of dates and gotten to know each other more to something more serious, that you have those boundary conversations early. How are we going to maintain sexual purity. I mean, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 makes it so clear, this is the will of God for you. So dating is a time where we're trying to determine the will of God for ourselves. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. He says, that's a wildly clear statement. And so I think as people who are serious about Jesus and serious about marriage and in a dating relationship, that we want to be serious about how are we going to remain pure and honor the Lord, says in our uh, honor the Lord, uh, self-control of our bodies and holiness and honor, he says there. Not like the Gentiles who do not know God. So us knowing God should make a difference in how we relate to each other, uh, especially physically in that text. And so uh, I want to have those boundary conversations earlier mm. in the relationship than most people have them. Don't have them after you've fallen into some sin. Have them before it. Say, I care about you enough. I want to honor you as a sister in all purity. Um, I hope the guy steps up in these relationships to have that conversation early and say, hey, can we talk about how we're going to talk in our conversations? How much are we going to talk and what are we going to talk about? And then with touching, how are we going to maintain sexual purity? Because there's going to be temptation. If we like each other and we stay together, we're going to want to touch. That's that's part of what God's wired into the marriage covenant. So we should expect to ex experience those kinds of temptations, not be surprised by them when they come. But I think it means talking about it out loud and with others to say, here's what we're trying to practice in our relationship. Does this seem wise to you? Should we be doing more or less in various areas? So my sense is that whoever, you know, anyone listening right now who's in a dating relationship, their probably first thought in hearing you, you offer that encouragement is, yeah, but that, that would be so awkward to bring that up, especially if it's, you know, earlier in the relationship, like you're kind of suggesting doing it sooner rather than later. Can't imagine kind of saying something like that uh, so directly. What, what would you say to that? Yeah, it is going to feel awkward. And I, and I think that a radic, uh, being uh, radical about Christ and discipleship to him is going to feel awkward in, in a dating relationship at several moments. And so it's hard, uh, you know, the, the way is wide that leads to destruction and the, the road is narrow that leads to life. And, um, and so I just want to encourage those people that, yes, it's going to be a little bit awkward at first, but let me tell you how that conversation will feel a year later or five years later. If you get married, how you'll look back on that conversation, it will cultivate a kind of intimacy that you couldn't have cultivated any other way. I mean, trust really is the fuel for intimacy in marriage. It's not compatibility. It's not flowers and chocolate and, and even saying not the right, like writing poems and saying the right thing. Ultimately, intimacy in marriage is fueled by trust. And so I want to say to that person, like, 
ask yourself, what's going to build the most trust in this relationship over time? If I, sh- if I demonstrate a radical commitment to patience and to purity and to faithfulness to Christ, to holiness, if I, if I demonstrate that early on, not, uh, not having to talk about it every time, not having to bring it up every time, but just early on saying up front, this is important to me, and I want to be careful with you as we walk down this road that we honor each other in the Lord. Um, I just think that's going to pave dividends. Whatever happens, if you if you get married, you're going to look back with such appreciation and joy over the patience that you demonstrated there. And if you don't get married and you end up marrying someone else, you're going to look back with all the more appreciation that someone was willing to have that conversation with you or that you were willing to step up and have that awkward conversation. So uh, I, I just think it's the kind of thing that that just builds trust, which is the most valuable thing in a relationship, especially when you get into marriage. Mm. Yeah. And then the third thing I would just say is um, as you pursue clarity in this relationship, and I talk about uh, clarity and intimacy in dating relationships, I think a lot of people pursue intimacy and think that a certain level of intimacy is the clarity that they needed. I, I just want to say uh, make dating a pursuit of clarity, not intimacy. I know that intimacy will come by spending time together and getting to know each other and caring for each other. I know that you can't avoid intimacy altogether but I think you want to make it a a pursuit of clarity. And I would say the biggest, the single biggest factor in that clarity is, does this person encourage my walk with Christ and my devotion to him or not? Uh, I think we get along with a lot of people in dating, but does this person spending time with them regularly, talking to them, giving my, my heart to them, does it encourage me to walk more closely with Christ and to give my life to him, to, to make my life count for his glory? Or is it kind of a distraction and I'm, I find myself making excuses for their lack of spiritual mm. vitality or their lack of spiritual engagement. I think especially for young Christian women, at least that's been my, again, anecdotally in my life, Christian women are far more likely to be making excuses for a guy who's not spiritually encouraging them in Christ and, and, and cultivating their devotion to the Lord because they want to, you know, this, this woman wants to be married. And I just want to say to them over and over again, no, don't lower the bar of his spiritual vitality because when you get into marriage, nothing matters more than is this person helping me love Jesus? Is this person helping me prepare for heaven? Is this help, person helping me lay down my life in all the ways that Jesus asked me to for his glory? And so I want to make that the, the single biggest factor mm. in the clarity. And, and up, up front, you know, you're getting to know each other. It's not going to be dynamic and deep right away. It probably shouldn't be. But just over time, is this time, am, am I spending time with this person because I want to be more like Jesus? I want to spend time with Jesus. Or again, is it a, dis- a distraction and a diversion from my spiritual life? Yeah, yeah. Well, Marshall, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with me and, and share uh, some of your own wisdom and insight and experiences when it comes to marriage and dating and singleness. Uh, we, we appreciate you taking the time. Man, it's been a joy. Love Crossway. Love what you guys do on several fronts. Read the ESV every day and are, are always picking up, I'm always picking up Crossway books. So, so thank you so much for what you guys do. That was Marshall Siegel on singleness and dating as a Christian. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Not Yet Married, The Pursuit of Joy in Singleness and Dating, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.